our habits form what we love. For instance, if you make it a habit in your life to always have a dog, you will have an increasing commitment to dogs as time moves on. Uh, If you vacation at the same place at the same time every year, you will be deeply tied to that place in that week of the year. If you listen to Mariah Carey every Christmas, you will have an increased love for Mariah Carey and Christmas. If you go to North Lime Donuts every Saturday, or every day, perhaps, you will have an increased love for North Lime Donuts. The same goes for the routines and sporting events, doesn't it? There's something about being a Kentuckian. Uh, maybe you're not one. If you are one and you hear the Kentucky, the, my old Kentucky home uh, being played at football games and the Kentucky Derby, it just does something to you, doesn't it? Every year, first weekend of May, every home football game, you hear the song. Maybe it's the why at the basketball games. Maybe that's what it is. But that's why we're so committed to, to liturgy here in our worship services. We want to create routines in our worship that increase our love for what God wants us to love. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we, uh, that's why we preach the scriptures. That's why we say the scriptures. That's why we sing the scriptures. Because we want our love for God's word to increase. We want our love for God's people to increase. That's why we do the greeting of peace. We want our love for Christ's sacrifice to increase. This is why we do communion each week. This is how God made us. We are people who need routines, especially when we're suffering in exile. I think that's why Peter touches on what he touches on in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3. Peter refers to us. If you've been with us, uh, we started this series in September preaching through 1 Peter. Uh, and, and you'll notice in the, in, in, ver- in the very beginning of the first chapter, Peter refers to us as exiles. He says that we're a minority sect that have to try to figure out how not only to survive, but even thrive in the midst of a majority culture. Uh, last week, uh, we continued our discussion on suffering. It started in chapter 3, verse 8, and it continues into today. And last week, we talked about how Jesus is going to one day vindicate us. He's going to have the last say. He's going to defend us to our enemies. But it's easy to lose sight of that truth when we're in the middle of our persecution. So this is why he lifts up how Jesus suffered and how Jesus was raised as vindication to his enemies. So if it happened to Jesus, if Jesus was vindicated, then you can be assured that your vindication one day is sure. It's going to happen for, you, for us too. So let's read our passage uh, today. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. I know there's some weird stuff in there. 
That's why Martin Luther, uh, the German reformer, here's what he said. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure one, in a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. <laughs> Martin Luther said, just like, I'm not real sure what Peter has to say here. But there's all kinds of questions that are raised, aren't there? There's this question of where Jesus go? Who are the spirits? What is the prison? What does Jesus say to them? Does actual water baptism save us? How did the water save Noah when it is more like the ark that saved Noah from the water? But while we're asking these questions, it's easy for us to, to, to focus on the part instead of the whole. It's easy for us to it's easy for us to not see the forest because of the trees. But if we can step back from these little questions, it can become a little more obvious. And what becomes obvious is that, there's really, uh, that there are really two main points that come out here. And when you put them together, it, means, it maintains, it, 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 you put them together and we see a refrain that we sing in our suffering. It becomes the routine, the thing we say over and over and over again in the midst of our suffering. And it's this. Is that Jesus Christ died for sins and he rose again from the grave in victory. Verse 18, you see the suffering of Jesus. And verse 22, you see the victory of Jesus. Verse 18, you see it. For Christ also suffered once for sins. That's the first part. The righteous for the unrighteous. The second part. That he might bring us to God. Being the third part. Being put to death in the flesh. This is the first half of the anthem. And this needs to be the first part of the refrain that plays over and over in our hearts and our minds as we go through persecution. As we go through this exilic life. As we go through our suffering. But it's a glorious first line, isn't it? It's glorious because Jesus' suffering, though in many ways like ours, is totally unique to Jesus. It's unique because it's final, it's unmerited, and it's effective. I didn't just pull those three words out anywhere. I pulled them right here from verse 18. It's final, as you see right there. It says, once for sins. Once for sins. He suffered once for sins. Now, in the rest of 1 Peter, well, the kind of suffering that, that Peter's talking about is that of persecution. But here in verse 18, it's not mainly about Jesus being persecuted. It's mainly about the fact that he died once for sins. And we see this language, once for sins, it's an allusion to the Old Testament, specifically the sacrificial system as outlined in Leviticus. When we read the sacrificial system in Leviticus, uh, we see it as archaic. But the point's really clear. It does raise a lot of questions. What does all this mean, the sacrificial system? But one thing is clear, and it's this. Sin is punishable by death. You can ask a lot of questions about it, but that's what it's trying to communicate. Sin is punishable by death. And as we go through the life of an Israelite, you'll see that animal after animal was slaughtered for the sin of the people so that the people could be in relationship with God. But these sacrifices didn't happen once. They were made continually for the people. So in the temple courts, there was a constant flow of blood. These sacrifices were repeated over and over and over again for every person for hundreds of years of Israel's history. But then things really changed with Jesus. 
Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.26. He says this, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. Once for all. Once for all. Jesus' suffering for our sin was final. No more sacrifices are needed. That's why we don't see anything about, about animal sacrifices in the New Testament. Because Jesus put into it. Jesus was able to pay our enormous debt because his life was infinitely more valuable than our death. And that has huge implications for you and for me. Now, it doesn't mean, the implication isn't that we don't suffer the consequences for our sin. For instance, if you don't obey the Sabbath and you just run yourself ragged and you never rest, you're going to be really tired. Well, your exhaustion is not condemnation. Your exhaustion is just the consequences for your poor decisions. But Jesus' once and for all sacrifice doesn't, does mean that we don't have to suffer the condemnation for God for our sins. If you're in Christ and you suffer, it might be for a lot of different reasons, including persecution. But you're not suffering because you're experiencing God's wrath or punishment for your sin. Jesus experienced that for you. Jesus' experience of that was full as he absorbed God's wrath on the cross. That was once for all. That's final. That's complete. And that's good news. Once for all. That was final. The second part is unmerited. You see it right there? The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus here is not suffering for his sin. He was righteous. But he suffered for ours. We're the unrighteous. In short, this is simply the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Big words. Substitutionary atonement. And here's what it means. Very simply, it means that Jesus died instead of you. Jesus was your substitute. Your sins deserved God's wrath and his punishment. And Jesus absorbed that wrath and that punishment, though he was without sin, though he only deserved God's favor. And the results that we now, by faith, that we are imputed with the favor of God that Christ has won for us. It's a bad trade, isn't it? Jesus takes on our sin. We take on his righteousness. Is totally unmerited. And maybe some of you, you've grown up in this Christian subculture where you've heard this over and over again, that Jesus has died for sin. I mean, you saw Eden, the little girl read, if you haven't been around much, that's my oldest. Um, uh, she's been wanting to read scripture. We've been putting her on hold for a while, and she finally bugged me enough that we did it. She would be able to tell you that Jesus died for sinners. And you might connect with that too, and you say, well, I'm so glad that Jesus loves me because I would die for my best friend. I would die for my spouse. I would die for my parents. I would die for my child. But the doctrine of substitutionary atonement goes so much farther than that. It's saying that Jesus died for you when you were his enemy. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from Les Mis. If you're a country kind of person, you might say less miserables. But it's a novel. It's written in the 1800s. It's been adapted in the movies and, uh, and playwrights. It's, it's great. At the very beginning of the movie, you see that the main character, Jean Valjean, he's been released from prison. 
and he's released from prison, he has anywhere to go. And he asks someone on the street, he says, hey, where, where should I go tonight? And they said, oh, you can go to the priest's house. The priest has a, will have a warm bed for you and fresh food. So he goes and, uh, and, and, he, and he experiences a really great meal uh, and sleeps well that night. And early, he gets up way early the next morning, way earlier than the priest and his wife. And he steals all the silverware in the house, puts it in his knapsack, and he leaves. He's caught pretty shortly thereafter uh, by the police. The police bring him back to the priest's house. And the police ask uh, the priest, they say, hey, uh, is this silverware yours? And he says, no, I gave it to him. And he says, John, why didn't you take the candlesticks too? And you watch it for the first time as you've seen this whole scene unfold and you are stunned. It makes your draw drop. Why would the priest treat him in this way? The priest is extending love to someone who's wronged him. And friends, that's grace. Jesus did not die for you when you had it all going for you. Jesus died for you when you punched him in the face. And the gospel will never become deeply personal for you until you see yourself as the robber of God's glory that you are. The gospel will never become personal for you until you see yourself first as an enemy of God. Until you see yourself as unrighteous to your very core. Until you see yourself as a miserable sinner. It's only then, when you see yourself like this, that you'll see the depth of love that God has for you. His love for you was costly, and it is, it is his love that should warm your heart. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. It's unmerited. This is his suffering. His suffering is once for all. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. And then it's effective. It brings us to God. We see that purpose statement right there in verse 18. It says that he might bring us to God. His purpose. He, he doesn't just suffer in a final kind of way as a masochist. Jesus isn't trying to get attention for being this great self-sacrificer. Nor did he suffer the righteous for the unrighteous as an abstract idea. Jesus suffered in this way to bring you and to bring me to God. Now, you and I, we might die at the hands of angry people. We might die at the hands of those who hate us for our faith. But our death, if our death as a martyr, if that's where we end up, it's not going to save anybody. It's not going to bring anyone to God. But Jesus' death accomplishes its purpose. It brought you and it brought me to God. And this should give us great confidence because we don't bring ourselves to God. It's not through our morality. It's not through our external adherence to the Ten Commandments. It's not through our personal piety. It's not through our sacrificial service. None of that brings us to God. We're just not strong enough. We need someone to do this for us, and Jesus is the only one qualified for this task. He died that he might bring you to God. So do you see how unique his suffering is here? Peter's trying to help us empathize. He's trying to show us Jesus so that Jesus can empathize with us in our suffering. That we have a Savior who didn't not suffer, but he suffered. But then he also wants us to see, hey, 
You didn't suffer like Jesus did. You didn't go once for all. You didn't go righteous for the unrighteous as a martyr. You did, you, you, your, your martyrdom, your suffering, doesn't bring anyone to God. It's unique. And aren't you glad that it's unique? Aren't you glad that it's not on you to bring people to God? Aren't you glad that you don't have to die as the righteous one to bring the unrighteous to faith? Aren't you glad that you don't have to die once for all for sin, that you don't have to observe God's wrath on behalf of humanity? You don't. Jesus did it for you. And it's this refrain. It's this is what we must sing. It's what we're going to need in the midst of persecution, the suffering of Jesus. But then we're going to need the victory of Jesus. You see it there in the, in the, in the, in the very last of 21 and verse 22. I know I'm skipping the juicy part. I'm getting there. You see it, it says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is, uh, this is an image of victory. When you think of image of victory, don't, don't you see, the, you see the, uh, the Olympics? You see the podium of gold, silver, and bronze. You, you see the champions on collegiate and professional sports. They're, they're, they're on the field, they're on the court, and they're, they're holding up their trophy. You, you see these champions as they go home, and you see a parade that's had for them as they go through the middle of town. That's our, that's, those are our images of victory. Well, in the scriptures, the image of Jesus' victory over death is him sitting at the right hand of the Father. What you see there is the champion of the world. He defeated his and our enemies, and that's why he sits there. And this is so important. This image that Jesus is victorious, it's so important for us when we're in persecution. Because the temptation of persecution for God's people is to believe that we've lost. And it sure does sound like we've lost. If you just, in a cursory reading of verses 8 to 17, you'll see it. It says, here's what persecution looks like. Verse 9, we incur evil. Verse 9, we're reviled. Verse 13, we're harmed. Verse 13, we suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 14, we're, we are afraid and troubled. And verse 16, we're slandered. Doesn't that sound like losing to you? <laughs> but it's not true. Because victory has been sealed in the resurrection. So do you hear this refrain? Our sin is paid and victory is sure. Our sin is paid, victory is sure. This is what we go about humming all the days of our lives. Especially during our days of persecution. It's during these days that it's easier to believe our circumstances, what they tell us, than what's most true, the refrain of the gospel. The refrain of the gospel, our sin is paid, our victory is sure. Our sin is paid, our victory is sure. Our sin is paid, victory is sure. This is our anthem. This is what we need in the midst of persecution. But then we've got these juicy verses, don't we? Verses 19 and 21. These are the money questions here. All those questions I raised at the beginning, they're all valid. But the core of what Peter is trying to do is give us an example of how Je Jesus vindicates those who are persecuted for righteousness. That's why he holds up Noah. He holds this up that we might connect more deeply with the more true story of the gospel instead of the less true story of our circumstances. He's trying to give us something that, that we can connect with, that we're familiar with. On NPR this week, um, I'm trying to give up on sports radio by 
listen to NPR. It's not really working, but it did for a few minutes this week. And um, <clears throat> um, I heard a story about a, a, a psychologist, Dan Gilbert, at Harvard, and he's um, he's done this. He's done this story about how how we connect with stories. And um, we usually think that the more novel the story, the more interesting. So we tell stories about our big vacations. Um, we tell stories about our big accomplishments because we think they're interesting. Not necessarily because we, we're boastful, but just because we're trying to connect with people. We say things about telling stories about our, our, our trip to Maui. We tell stories about how we picked the trifecta ride at the Derby. But what the, what the psychologist has determined is that the more familiar the story, the more interesting it is to the hearer. Not the more novel, the more familiar. Because when things aren't familiar, though it's interesting, it might provoke envy in you. Like if I heard someone tell a story about winning the trifecta at the Derby, I'd get really mad. Because I just tried to pick the winner and I lost. Or maybe uh, he, he, they're talking about going to Maui and you're like, I'm doing good to go to Gatlinburg, bro. <laughs> but when things aren't familiar... Uh, not, not only does it provoke envy, but it, 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 also, um, it also puts a lot of pressure on the storyteller. Because the storyteller often leaves out a lot of details that you can't fill in because you've never done that before. But when the storyteller is telling a story that you're familiar with, you can fill in the gaps. Thus, listeners, are they connect with you. And Peter didn't know anything about this research when he wrote First Peter, but he does understand that we need something familiar to connect with in order to give us assurance that our vindication is sure. That's why he does this with Noah. See, Noah was vindicated just like we're going to be. See, Noah, he, he was ridiculed during the years he built the ark. Some people said, some people think it, it took him 70, some people think 120. A long time. And during those 70 to 120 years, he was the vast minority. There were only seven other believers. His wife, his three sons, and their wives. That was his little team of exiles. And during those 70 to 120 years, you know, while they're building this great big boat, that people are saying that he's crazy. You know he wanted to defend himself, but he didn't. God was requiring him to keep his heart open that God might bring repentance to his opponents. But in the end, none of them did repent. So they were judged when Jesus vindicated Noah. And Jesus preached this judgment to the spirits of those who persecuted Noah. Jesus had a field day with those who persecuted Noah. And one day he's going to have a field day with those who persecute you. Jesus will defend you. He will vindicate you to all those who persecute you. That's what this Noah stuff's about. But then there's the baptism. Both baptism for us and the flood for Noah, here's what they depict. They depict gaining life from death. The waters of baptism, they represent the cleansing of our sin that brings us life through faith. That's what baptism does for us. But then for Noah, the water for Noah is what saved him from the wicked generation from which he was a part. And when the flood had subsided... When it was gone, Noah and his family are on dry land. Noah, from that day forward, could look back on the flood and think about how gracious God was on him and his family. He could remember that flood that way. And now we, as God's people, we can look back on our baptism and all that it represents to be assured of God's faithfulness to us. 
That's what baptism is all about here. This leaves us with two application questions. How do I incorporate the refrain of the gospel in my life? How do I incorporate our sin is paid and victory is short? Our sin is paid and victory is short. Our sin is paid and victory is short. Well, you could get a tattoo. That's possible. That's one way to incorporate the refrain is to have it on your body forever. Remember how I started my sermon. Remember how I started my sermon about the power of routine and how routines strengthen our loves. This is no less true in the Christian life. Our routines of weekly worship, our routines of daily practicing the spiritual disciplines, they're centered, they're centered on reinforcing the exile's refrain. Every week here in corporate worship and every day in our, in our, in our disciplines, we're, we're singing this refrain, our sin is paid and victory is sure. Our sin is paid and victory is sure. And if we neglect these routines, the refrain's sweetness will be increasingly less noticeable in our lives. But conversely, if we renew ourselves to these routines, then the refrain's sweetness will be increasingly more noticeable in our lives. That's the first question. How do, you, how do we incorporate the refrain into our lives? Second one. Um, did you connect with the Noah story? It's a pretty simple yes-no question, isn't it? If you did connect with it, then, you, then you're relieved. You're relieved that one day Jesus is going to defend you, and you don't have to defend yourself any longer. If you didn't connect with it, maybe the reason is not that it's confusing as much as, as it is that you don't have anything to be persecuted for. Maybe your life blends in so easily with the world around you that you receive no ridicule. Or maybe you have isolated yourself from all non-believers that there's no one around to misunderstand why you live so differently. And both deserve correction. And can I be really honest? My life blends in really easily with those around me because I don't like to be disliked. I like everyone to love me. It's also hard. It's also hard as a pastor to not be isolated. My job is to shepherd the flock. It's hard for me to get around non-church people. That's why it's hard for me to connect with the Noah story. So, church, listen. We're not going to try to be offensive so that we'll be persecuted, but we should be righteous because when we are, we're promised that persecution will come. We shouldn't be scared because we know that our vindication is sure. So may we be assured of our coming vindication of Christ so that we can withstand the assaults and persecution. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I'm, I ask you to forgive me for wanting something else than the gospel. Lord, I want a new song. I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm tired of singing, our sin is paid, our victory is sure. So would you forgive me for my numbness of heart? Would you forgive me for misplacing my affections? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us live lives of righteousness as exiles? Fill us with your spirit, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.